incredibly um, foundational, sort of old school, but I'm very um, intentional with my calendar. So if I know that I have, you know, some, a big meeting that I have coming up, it's not just going to be placed on my calendar. I'm going to make sure that I actually have dedicated focus time before that meeting in order to actually work on it. Because if I don't put it on my calendar, my my calendar will get consumed by everybody else. And the thing that I've learned too, is that you progress in your career and you get busier and busier, you take on leadership roles and so on. If you don't run your calendar, somebody else will. So I take very active, um, I guess, control, if you will, of my time um, and, and my calendar and where I spend it and what I do. Hey, hey, Tammy, it's good to connect. It's been a long time. How are you? I'm, I'm doing well. It's really good to see you too, Paul. So I'm going to kick us off. Um, I'm going to actually share my screen and try to just read off you know, some of your top highlights um, from the early days. Just going to read it back that, you know, back in the day, um, your first role was marketing manager at Symbol Technologies, project manager then at Pearson, and then a really interesting stint where you were on the sales team at Responsys that then got acquired by Oracle. And we're going to dive into Oracle in that story. And then is it Xamarin? Xamarin. Yep, exactly. Xamarin is where you got in and started building and leading teams, and that's acquired by Microsoft. And then where you and I worked together was, of course, the Double Dutch story, um, and that was a, a fun ride. And then Lever, um, definitely I remember you leading out the team there in San Francisco, and, and that was the applicant tracking system. And then we'll skip ahead you know, to the end of it, and we'll, we'll talk about DocuSign, um, because just what a you know, what a great kind of, you know, marker for everything in SaaS and everything in the past few years and the ups and the, and the down. Let's go back to early, like back when you first jumped in, you know, out of high school, out of college. Um, let's start there, right? So did I read it right? That Did you go to UC Davis? Um, you know, are you a California Bay Area native? Like tell us a little yeah. bit about that. Yeah, I did. I went to Davis. Um, Bay Area, California native, grew up in the South Bay, um, obviously didn't go very far for school. Um, always, you know, I think I knew kind of that I wanted to work in or around tech just simply because I grew up here, not because I necessarily had any connections. I, in fact, I didn't. Um, but just, you know, you sort of grow up in this climate. So I, I thought I, that might be the path that I went in. Um, and, you know, Davis wasn't particularly like a strategic move. It was sort of like, okay, cool. They accepted me. Seems like a good school. I'll go there. Um, and even now looking back, you know, I'll, it was just such a great, like, I still very much now keep in touch with many folks from Davis professionally and personally. That's great. Did you know, were you a part of like the, when is UC Davis, the, the viticulture and like the wine school and oh, yeah yeah I I actually took a viticulture class I didn't you know major in it but yeah Davis is like a super sort of like agricultural and it's well known actually for its agricultural program and veterinary practice neither of which I entered into but probably should have um, but yeah there is a viticulture class you know there's tastings it's it's pretty cool for a college program it's, I've heard a lot of good things. And I mean, I live up there in the wine country, so uh, yeah. I'm, I'm a fan. 
So, okay, well, great to talk with you. So take us through, you know, that first role. So you, you wanted to get into marketing. What was that first role? Yeah, I, you know, when I got out of school, the vast majority of everybody I knew was going into some sort of finance role or consulting. Um, I, it wasn't for me. And for me, I thought, well, marketing seems like that's pretty fun and is like a good sort of like entry into any company that could be transferable. So yeah, I started at a company called Symbol Technologies um, way back when, and that was during, you know, the 2001.com. I felt very lucky at that time to even get any sort of job um, post-school. And, you know, I did like website updates. I did, um, you know, went to events and helped out with our events team. I also helped, you know, just copywriting and proofreading with press releases, sales support materials. It was a little bit of like a jack of all trades sort of role. And I think at the time was really perfect to just sort of like give me an initial glimpse and entry into, into corporate life. Gotcha. Okay. And then what about the step from marketing to sales? Like yeah. What, oh, that's the best yeah. So, so after symbol, I went on to Pearson, which is a small um, boutique agency. And part of what we did at Pearson, I was a project manager there. And so what I did with, at Pearson was we worked really closely with a bunch of, and these are sort of like back in the day, legacy technology companies, HP, Sun, Cisco, Interwoven, like just sort of, you know, names back then that you might recognize. And we supported these companies with a bunch of sales materials. So playbooks, um, collateral, that sort of thing. And so I got a lot of exposure to salespeople back then, just by the very nature of what I did. Um, And, you know, it's interesting because doing that didn't necessarily convince me that that was the thing I wanted to do. In fact, I actually felt like this is, there's a very specific persona, if you will, that a salesperson is, and I don't necessarily relate to that. Um, so, you know, after Pearson, I actually took a little break. Um, I took a little break and, you know, I think in the long run, it was um, one of the best things I could have ever done. Um, I just sort of started exploring different careers. I felt, you know, for various reasons, like, I'm not sure this is what I want to do long-term. I'm not really sure. Marketing seemed fun initially out of school, but I'm not really sure this is the thing I want to do. I don't know what I want to do. I thought even into like going into like, you know, hospitality or like events or something along those lines. Um, I started interviewing people, like people that I went to college with from Davis and seeing, okay, what are you doing? And I had a lot of friends who were in various sales professions, not all tech sales, but like somebody was like in med device sales. Somebody else was like in pharma sales. Somebody else was like selling like e-discovery solutions to law firms um, and finally, you know, a few, a couple, a couple buddies, like a really close college roommate of mine, she was like, Tam, you should, you should really think about sales. And I almost felt like I, that's not me. Like, I just, I don't like to talk about money. I'm not aggressive. Like I don't identify with that kind of role. And, you know, to be quite honest, Paul, like I didn't have a lot of role models, you know, that I could sort of like look up to that I identified with certainly not women. Um, and anything, anyway, one thing led to another and I thought, you know what, I'll just give it a go for a year, see how it goes, um, see what I think. Risk profile back then was low, you know, um, so I went for it and became an SDR at Responses. You know, you said something interesting about back when you were kind of building out your career, like there weren't a lot of role models. And I, I think things have, you know, shifted. I, oh. It feels like there's a tide. 
but there's probably people out there who still feel that it's just hard to find a role model. If, if you're like, you know, someone who's looking for a role model, is there a good place where you would just say, start looking or, you know, start with this community? Yeah, I, I'm so glad you asked that, Paul. I, um, it's something I fear, I feel really deep about because of how I started and, and how I felt when I started. And I really do want to sort of extend that to others who are looking to break in. Like I said, even though I grew up here, I didn't have any connections whatsoever going forward or coming into this. Um, I would say to anyone who's looking to break into tech, it is a much more open and inclusive environment than it was back when I first started. Um, and don't feel like because you don't have connections or you don't even have experience or knowledge of tech, that it's a barrier. In fact, as long as you come in with an open mind and an eagerness to learn, that will open a lot of doors for you. And of course, get out there and network and meet people, listen to podcasts and educational content such as this, so that you can learn new perspectives and be able to find your way in. Can, yeah. you, can you just tell us a little bit about, you know, when you became leading a team, leading managers, just what that, that kind of felt like? Yeah, well, so at Responses, um, I, I was a first-line leader. I, wrote, I went from being an AE to a first-line leader, and I was there for a total between Responses and Oracle for about right, seven and a half, eight years or so. Um, I would say, because this will influence my story later on, but Responses was a really formative time for me in my career, mainly because obviously it was my very first sales job. Um, it was my first time carrying a quota, um, you know, and and having that. And but also because the company grew tremendously and scaled in the time I was there. I was employee number 150 at Responses. And we went to being like, I don't know, a 1,500-person company, um, $2 billion run rate getting acquired by Oracle. And it the, despite the incredible hypergrowth during the time I was there, we were a very, very functional and well-run go-to-market organization. And I know people don't, like, you don't hear that very often these days. Um, and we sort of have this um, group between sales, marketing, pipeline, sales ops, rev ops, CS, like it was a very efficiently run and functional and fun time. And so for me, I think I really sort of like got a really extremely solid foundation. It unfortunately colored my experience for future for future roles because I thought it was just always like this. Um, but that was incredibly educational and 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 um grounding, if you will, for me, and just gave me like the best sales education I could have possibly gotten. Um, I had great leaders there. It was just a really good experience. And so, yeah, going back to your point, that's when I also made the move from being an SDR to an AE to then a frontline leader. And so I really sort of like got, you know, my career just sort of like um, took a really fast pace during that period. So interesting to hear you talk about the like when there's a synergy or when all of like the rev ops and the tech team and the marketing and the sales, like when everyone's, you know, like the best moment I remember is once the CTO at PandaDoc pulled up this graphic and it was like one slide was a target with all these arrows that were all missing and, you know, all over. And then it showed another picture of a target with all the arrows kind of all hitting the exact same spot. Yeah. So everyone, everyone was aimed at the, the, the right timing, the right moment, and the right direction. And like when everyone does that, like it just feels so much more fun and you can go so much further. 
Yeah, that's exact. That's a great, that's a great visual. That's, that's exactly how it felt. You know, um, we were just all pointed in the right direction and it was very much like, and even again, sometimes that kind of falls apart as the company grows. We also went public during that time too, before the acquisition, right? And so sometimes that falls apart when you grow as a, when you grow that quickly, but it didn't. In fact, we were somehow able to lock that in and, and scale it. So my next question is a little bit of a lot of people haven't gone through an M&A or a private equity, you know, or a, a going public and then an acquisition. So if, if you're working at, you know, a private SaaS company right now, yeah, the, the writing's on the wall that next year there could be a lot of M&A and a lot yeah. of, you know, good SaaS companies that are going to get acquired. So it gets announced, you get the email, it, it hits TechCrunch or it's it's on, you know, PR Newswire, like, yeah. What do you what are you gonna go through? What happens when this happens? Yeah, I think I think the first thing I say is don't panic, um, because that's usually where people's minds go. Um, and then once you get over that hurdle, and look, obviously the MA environment and 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 exit market was very different back then than it is, you know, to your point, the circumstances of 2023 will be very unique. Um, so I, you know, the thing I would say is. Yes, it's a change, but I would look at it with a sense of curiosity before making any sudden moves. You don't know yet how things will go. It could be, um, you know, it'll be it'll be a cultural experience as you get absorbed into a new company. But it'll um, it'll be one of the best learning experiences you've ever had to, and it's worth sticking around at least a little bit to see how it could play out. Um, it could very well maybe be tough from a company standpoint, but it might benefit you individually, you know, kind of depending on where things stand, you might get a really advantageous comp plan. You might get the opportunity to move into a different leadership role. So I would say, you know, just sort of approach it with some flexibility and, and instead of fear. I think that's really sage advice. Now move us to kind of the product-led growth. So the PLG conversation that's just been happening so much. Yeah. But would you say was Lever or in parts of the DocuSign world, like which one of your most recent roles would you say you kind of saw the, you know, the laying of the foundation for product-led growth or did one of your teams have, you know, more of a, a PLG slant? Yeah, I would say Xamarin certainly did. So Xamarin was a developer tool um, and it was, you know, a fair, it was very easy to buy and transact. Um, you know, it was a very self-service sort of tool. DocuSign obviously very much is so. I would say, um, you know, I think in my experience and seeing, you know, between some of the various PLG companies that I've been at, but also just observed is I think where a lot of companies struggle and have challenges with, but can 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 overcome is bridging the gap between PLG and direct. Like there's always going to be a little bit of natural tension there. And that's okay. So long as the company kind of figures out and understands what the customer journey looks like, and then builds that into the model and builds that into the go-to-market model. There is absolutely a harmony where PLG and direct can play together. And even like, you know, layering partners and channel together on top of that too. Um, so I, you know, I know it's like we we call it PLG these days, but the idea and the notion behind it has been around for a long time. You know, companies like Slack and Atlassian obviously have taken great advantage of it. That's I like that phrasing about harmony because it it makes you just think about you know 
like a different recipe or a different, you know, a different song. Like there's just, there's different analogies where it's about layering and it's about timing and it's about, it has to work together. It has to go. Yeah. What, what would you, what would you just define, you know, product led growth, PLG? Have you heard a really good definition or how would you describe it to somebody? Ooh, who's just I don't know if I've heard a really good definition. So let me just make one up on the fly here, Paul. Um, Okay, product-led growth, I would say I would define it as um, product market fit that allows a customer to buy in the way and the channel and the way that they'd like to to, to buy. Um, I think that's part of it. Hope I don't get yep. grilled from my marketing team. You know, something something along those lines. It's I think that's it's you're you're getting into a, a key area of it. And yeah, I don't think there's a perfect definition, but the more I have these conversations, I think we're going to get closer. So what about a, the flip side? So I always hear this story. When I talk to people about PLG, they say, but there's going to be some companies that it just doesn't work. And they always say, look at Workday. You can't do PLG with HR. What do you think? Like, Are there some companies where PLG just, it ain't going to fly? Or do you think pretty soon every SaaS company no matter how big and bulky and burdensome the implementation, they will find a way to make it a PLG. Like, what do you think? So, yeah. Um, so I think there are certain, I don't think it's a company thing. I think it's a product thing, right? So there are certain products like, yes, of course, like Workday is a big enterprise, a big enterprise product that requires enterprise wide deployment and implementation and, you know, a heavy CS team and a heavy implementation team to, to, to get that off the ground. But I think there are elements that maybe a company like Workday or, a, you know, an even bigger company could eventually initialize within the product that company that customers can then transact on their own. I don't know what that might look like, but I think every company should explore what that might look like because it's going to be incremental revenue. It's going to be incremental revenue and we're moving into a world where consumers are used to just doing things on their phone via apps and not having to talk to someone every single time. So I think it's, I don't think it's a company thing. I think it's a product thing and that companies should carefully inspect and look at what things they can introduce via product led growth. And, you know, it could even be like a pilot sort of thing that they, that they pilot via PLG to see how it plays out and to, and to see what the demand for it is. I really like I, I like how you're how you're talking on it. I'm I'm curious, like where an AE and a CSM, and does it start to ever blur, or do roles start to change from what we know? And so I just wanted to hear how yeah. do you guys talk about it at DocuSign? Yeah. So so one one motion that's fairly significant for us is actually our our direct. It's where our PLG and direct teams meet. So we do have. Um, we have different types of book of books of business depending on you know segment and motion or vertical I should say, um, but we do have a significant part of our business that is PLG based. So customers that have transacted and bought on their own self service DocuSign accounts via our website, um, and we specifically have certain teams that will go and pursue those accounts simply because you know we can see that they're um, they have potentially more use just based on you know certain profile of the company or profile of the persona that we're talking to, that they could do much better and be better served by us through a corporate plan. So there is actually a motion built out around that. Um, in addition, 
to other motions that are more sort of like install focused where the AEs might be working with a, C, a CSM or a renewal manager. And that, that's, like I said, it's highly dependent on the size of the company and what segment they fit in. Um, so this is the investing corner, um, yeah. money, finance, we can go as deep or we can, we can move right along. But my first question is, is there anything you've picked up from the, the acquisition world or when, when your, your ISOs and your ESOPs become, you know, a public company and you're getting grants and could you tell us about the Oracle moment or just the DocuSign moment? Like, I think that's a question a lot of people They've never gone through it. So is there any guidance you can give? Like what, what happens? Yeah. So, so typically through an acquisition, there's not a lot of, there's not a lot of, um, I don't want to use the word options because I know that means different things, but you're sort of funneled into one direction, which is that usually your options get turned into grants, actual grants. That's kind of usually how it works. Um, I would say, you know, from, from, so again, and there's not always a lot of leeway on whether or not you can do anything with that. It just also depends on like how far you invested and how deep you are in, in that journey. Um, you know, what I would say about just investing too is, you know, I've been really eager to talk to you about that too, because that's an area that I'm starting to get into and have dabbled a little bit in 2022 and looking to do more of in 2023. But it's something, you know, having been on the operating side, the entire time, like it's fascinating to me to sort of apply a different mental model to companies when looking at it from an investing standpoint. Okay, well, let's let's dive in. I mean, so maybe just before we talk about the, the next couple of years for you, what about just historically, how have you had a investing strategy or a finance strategy? Like, has it has it evolved over the years? Or just what would you say? What is your investing strategy? It's it's nascent. So I've um, I have invested in a couple companies. Some have been direct. Some have been through a fund. Some have been through syndicates. Um, and then I also done a little bit of real estate investing, too. So I think, um, you know, and then sort of like typical, you know, market investing and index funds and things like that. I would say um, if I've had any big lesson is I, I wish I would have just started earlier. You know, I think in the beginning, it just feels you're so focused on your career, you're so focused on like what's going on in front of you. And in my case, also building a family that you just sort of, um, you know, leave it to later. And I think, you know, for me, if I had any sort of big takeaway that I think would benefit people is start early, even if it's just a little bit. Um, and and then, again, starting doesn't necessarily mean quite literally deploying capital, right? Start learning, just start having conversations, start talking to people, start consuming content around it, just so that you can at least be exposed to it and learn some of the vocabulary and some of the concepts. So, so that's, that's probably, you know, some advice that I would, I would give to others. What about for people that, so I think a lot of the, the listeners are probably like account executives, SDRs, sales managers, VPs, and then a lot of founders too. So we, in a couple episodes, we talked about setting up the 401k and yeah. you know, I talked, about, I talked about like, that's, that's kind of the first step is, but even in your twenties, it can be scary to be, you know, clicking up on the, the contribution right. percentage. Like, should you do 6%, 8%, 12%, all of a yeah. sudden you're like, wait, wait, I, I want that money. Like I want to use it to, right. to go and out. And nowadays, probably seeing it trend down after you've just, you know, put in 6%, 12%, whatever it might be. Right. But I think you know, if you are earlier in your career, 
time is on your side and you have time to sort of like let the market play itself through. Um, obviously, if you're later in your career and those funds are necessary for other things, that's a slightly different story. But if you are at a place where you can quite literally afford to have a bigger, you know, longer timeline in front of you, you just sort of have to put it in there and let it ride. Um, yeah. You know, and that doesn't just apply to 401k, but like, you know, index funds and things like that, too. Um, the other thing I would say is, you know, don't forget to actually allocate your 401k. A lot of people have made that mistake where they just like put their money, like allocate their paycheck to the 401k, but forget to actually invest it in something. And there, you know, your company will have, you know, other resources that can help you do that or ask a buddy, you know, to yeah. help you, to help you pick something, but you've got to actually, once it's, it doesn't just like magically grow in a 401k, it has to be invested in something. Don't I'll forget to a, do that, everybody. I'll, I'll put a screenshot in the blog that comes with this because I think my, my wife has done that same thing for yeah. multiple years and it sat there and I, I get it. So we'll cover that step. So this is, maybe it's not relatable, but I kind of think, you know how we always talk about your pipeline health and your pipeline composition, like in sales, you should have a couple big deals and a, a few like yeah. you know mid steady. So yeah. however you think about it, that's like having a healthy pipeline. Do you think about something like that with your, you know, you've got your retirement account, you've got your stock market, you know, just standard stock equity, you know, S&P 500, that investment, and then you've got real estate, and then you're starting to do these angel and, and investing in individual companies. Yeah. Do you think of it like a pie chart? Or do you think of it like, here's my big, you know, my big whale deal, and here's my, my run rate deals? Like, how do you think I about do. it? I do sort of think about it. And it's an active conversation that we have, you know, in our family with my husband, um, the thing is, so yes, I do. We do think about it in sort of percentages and how much risk we're willing to take on. And so each time we do something, it's like, okay, what's our liquidity on this? If, as far as like, if we needed that money for whatever reason, could we get it out or is it stuck there for 10 years? Um, or is the, and so we also think about it as far as timeline too, right? So not just amount, but also what's available to us within a certain amount of time. Um, cause that's important depending on, you know, whatever goals or, or, or timelines you might have. Um, so that's, we do think about that. And I don't remember now, even off the top of my head, what exactly what our allocations are, but yeah, there's a diversification across assets, but there's also diversification across like, um, risk profile too. And, yeah. you know, I wouldn't say anybody, if somebody does, please share that with me, but has cracked the nut on like, where do you place your big bets? Because where somebody might big bets might be where somebody's like, oh, that's my risk. That's my risky part of my of my portfolio, you know. Um, so so I think that's that's the secret is trying to figure that part out. And I don't I don't have the answer. A couple syndicates and you talked about leading or, or dropping in an angel investment. Can you just give us how did you first get into that or what are you now kind of thinking through for your next steps? Yeah, so I joined a great organization called Hustle Fund earlier this year. I think it was actually very early in 2022. Um, and for me, it was very much a first step. You know, I think the thing that actually really attracted me to Hustle Fund was, you know, they have kind of this no a-holes policy around investing. And it's like a everybody's welcome sort of policy, too. So I, I didn't want to enter into something where it was just going to be a bunch of tech people. <laughs> if you will. Right. And I was going to be just sort of like the only novice one, like not being able to follow. 
Um, and so Hustle Fund was a, was a great foray into that, right? There's um, people from all over the world, actually, that come in. Um, you know, the, the initial deployment's reasonable. There's a ton of education. And for me, that was the number one priority. There's also, of course, access that you get to, to founders and to different deals that are available too. And so for me, it's always about content. It's always about learning because then no matter what I do from that, that point on, that learning has been absorbed. Like that's the part that like, you might kiss your funds goodbye and, or, you know, see you later, but you know, the learning stays with you and you can apply that towards other things. Um, so that's been really positive. I also just, you know, had a founder friend who reached out and I was interested in joining like a family and friends round that they had raised. So, you know, yeah. that was sort of serendipitous. And then, um, you know, I know you and I have had some separate conversations about 20, 2023 that I'm excited for. Um, and then the real estate thing is something that we'd always, you know, we'd always talked about and discussed, but there's so many different types of real estate investing. I mean, once you, once you open that hatch, like it's just, there's so many different things. So I think it's about whether you're interested in being a passive investor, an active investor, and actually owning homes and having property ownership and all of that, like, you know, there's just, but everyone sort of has to find what's right for them based on their specific lifestyle. I, li I like that a lot. And yeah, this year has been my kind of, you know, like just like graduating, college, graduating yeah. college and well, you go out in the workforce and it's like, you have no, you have no view of what are the paths. Like you don't know yeah. the steps that, Oh, yeah. if you want to become a CMO, then you go down this cobblestone pathway and you follow all these little steps to get now I'm in that same moment for me, kind of the, the venture world and the LP world. So I'll try to give everyone like a snapshot of hustle fun. Sounds like a great one. Um, I remember talking with um, Scott Barker at GTM fund mm -hmm. and that that's a, you know, a collection of like 200, you know, folks who are operators and they all get together and there's learning and they do, you know, a fund that's investing through Love them. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, you and I talked about stage two capital, which is a really good one that, that, you know, I just feel fortunate. Like they, they let me in and they, um, they've kind of been, you know, teaching me up on all the processes. So uh, aside from that, I think there's, you know, Pavilion has a, a big following on LinkedIn, or I see all these great people who are part of Pavilion. So they might be teaching a little bit or having courses on that, but if not, I'll try to share out a few more resources, but I think what you're saying is spot on that you don't have to invest first. You can find these resources and read about, you know, how, how does it work and what, what's the time horizon? Like, I think it's useful to know, like, I think most of these investments are like five to seven year, you know, yeah. period, right? Like these aren't, these aren't quick bet plays. These are, exactly. if, if you help a friends and family round, like that might be nine to 10 years until okay. that company has really matured. So you, you have to know that. Um, so I'm going to swing us completely over to the new technique section where we just ask about, is there a tool like a business tool or a personal app or a personal tool, or is there something you've been trying to get into lately or you've been using that's been really interesting? Not particularly. I will say I'm not really newfangled when it comes to that. But what I will say, um, I'm actually looking at my phone right now. It's just sort of like my own wellness apps. So I'm a big sort of like fitness and wellness person. Um, for me, my daily quote unquote hack, if you will, is I have to move in the morning. I have to do something. So I usually do some sort of pretty 
extensive workout in the morning. I usually am up at like 5.30. Um, and then I also am pretty active just throughout the day. I try to sort of like get outside um, at some point and do walking meetings also. Just for me, movement is, is a life hack. Um, and it's something that, you know, has been, you know, actually, I mean, I've always been sort of an active person, but particularly during COVID, it really made all the difference. And so it's been, you know, the last three years or so. Um, I know, you know, a lot of people have, uh, you know, other sorts of like things around time management for me. Again, it's incredibly um, foundational and sort of old school, but I'm very um, intentional with my calendar. So if I know that I have, you know, some, a big meeting that I have coming up, it's not just going to be placed on my calendar. I'm going to make sure that I actually have dedicated focus time before that meeting in order to actually work on it. Because if I don't put it on my calendar, my, can my calendar will get consumed by everybody else. And the thing that I've learned too, is that you progress in your career and you get busier and busier, you take on leadership roles and so on. If you don't run your calendar, somebody else will. So I take very active, um, I guess, control, if you will, of my time um, and, and my calendar and where I spend it and what I do. I love that hack about controlling your calendar and the morning. I want to ask you a question. So I listened to, there's a podcast that I'm a big fan of. That's the Kleiner Perkins podcast. Mm -hmm. And they list, they just sat down with this, the CMO, Linda Boff of General Electric GE. So she apparently is one of these top, top CMOs, but in the podcast, she talks about how she wakes up at 5.00 AM and she has a cup of coffee and she goes on like a walk with her little dog. And from five to six, she's like waking up thinking. And then from six to seven to seven 30, she's just doing writing. Like she jots down like mm -hmm. these, you know, top internal memos or LinkedIn posts or like the top, you know, long form writing that she wants to get done. Um, so for her, it was walking and always, but, but gee, that's just getting up so early. Like I hate getting up early, but I'm, I'm starting to hear from you and, you know, from other great, great folks. That's like, when did you start waking up so early? Like what made you kind of click um, into that mode? Yeah, you know, I, um, I've i always, well, no, I haven't always been a morning person. I It took time, Paul. Like it really, really took time to get there. But now at this point, it's become breathing to me. And I've, I don't, you know, this is, I know this is, I don't drink coffee. I actually don't need it. I, when I'm up in the morning, I'm up. Um, I'm ready. I'm ready to go. So I am like more of my productivity is generated in like before noon. And so I know from like a creativity and prep and all that standpoint, I, I try to kind of like push all that up. So I have, you know, the most brain power, if you will, um, during that time. But for me, and it sounds like, you know, similar, similar to Linda, like that morning time for me, whether it, is, whatever it might look like for different people, it completely sets the day for me completely sets the tone it sets the energy it sets the day like I'll even feel a little bit off if I haven't been able to for whatever reason um been able to get out there you know if I'm traveling or whatever I'll even if I'm traveling for work I'll travel the night before just so that I can be up and do my morning routine the next day rather than taking an early morning flight so yeah. that's, that's kind of like how critical it's become for me it's a sacred block in your in your yeah. calendar in your day can't, yeah. Do not yeah. do not DNB. Do not book. Yeah. No. Yeah. Okay. So it just sets um, me right. It sets me right. I might have to start waking up earlier. I just I I hate it. But I mean, I, I now I wake up. I mean, we've got a two year old, so like I mean, I'm up there early. There's no. It's different. It's different with because I you know I have kids too, but 
they're older and in, in the early days, it's you're kind of not sleeping as well when they're around that age. So you're waking up out of necessity, not because you want yeah. to, it's because you're on someone else's timeline. Yeah. Your no. time will come soon enough. Uh, I, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll join you on the 5.30 a.m. workout calls. Like we can uh, <laughs> yeah. I'll challenge you. I, you know, I'm, I need it after these past couple of years. I need to get, get some movement going. Um, so final question here to wrap us all up would just be, I like to know from your vantage point, you've seen a lot of sales cycles. You're in forecast calls. You're talking with your sellers and across the, the team. Um, it seems like there's this idea of, you know, do nothing is going to become a, still a top, top reason that deals are getting stuck or that companies are saying no. Yeah. So yeah. for 2023, you know, if you're an AE or if you're a customer success manager and you're talking about your top accounts, is there something you would give as guidance? Like, how do you think through all those steps to why a company is saying, let's just do nothing or let's just continue with the status quo? So, so I've been having this conversation a lot. Um, this is what I'm, this is what I, you know, have sort of been advising and, and talking about. Um, the climate has changed, not just for people as who are sellers, but for people who are buying, right? For people who are buying, even if they've been at the company that they've been at for a while, the buying cycle and evaluation stages for them will be different than it was three years ago. So even they might not know their own approval processes, who the key decision makers might be. Maybe there's got to be new influencers that need to be involved as well. So I think we as sellers cannot assume that our buyers know their own cycle, which is crazy because then you're like as a seller, which is like, well, then how do I figure this out? And what I would say there is I would say, you know, if I was an AE and I was talking to you, Paul, I would say, hey, you know, Paul, one of the things and I would bring this up proactively. I wouldn't wait until there's a stall. I would bring this up proactively and I would say, Paul, one of the things we've noticed in talking to other companies just because of the macroeconomic environment right now is that, you know, companies are taking longer to make a decision. They're involving more people. Um, and, you know, we're just finding that cycles are elongating. And I know you've purchased software for your company before, but how do you think that might be different? How do you think that might be different? And how can I help you and your team make a decision within the timeline that we've discussed. And then the other thing I would say is, you know, I also don't want you, Paul, to be afraid to come to me with not so great news, right? I want to work through it together. So if you're feeling like your team might be leaning away or might be hesitating for whatever reason or might need more time, please don't go dark on me. Please tell me, you know, I appreciate the updates regardless. So, I mean, I think that's all we can do as sellers. You, you can't, you just can't force it. If you, you've got to be customer centric, they're either going to buy or they're not going to buy. And it's not, oftentimes not, not directly up to the person you're zooming with. Right. So, so you, but, but you have to ask, you have to ask and you have to give them the ability to tell you no and to work through it together. Yeah. I think that's, that's such, such good advice that I, we're going to share out with everyone. Tammy, Always fun to catch up with you. And I'm so glad that you ended up getting into sales and you kept going and kept building because no, seriously, I mean, you're a role model, role model for a lot of folks. And, you know, hopefully at the, the, the next window that opens up, um, give me a call and I'll, I'll be on your team. Um, whenever. Yeah. It, it's out, so. Well, I think we'll be talking a lot more in 2023, Paul. Okay.
Sounds good, Tammy. Take care. Sounds good. You too.